Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to Reimagining Love. I am excited to be in your ears today. So over the course of these next two episodes, I'm going to be talking with you about this topic of sharing feedback in our intimate relationships. I'm going to be unpacking whether and when and how we turn the stuff that lives inside of a thinking bubble into a speaking bubble. How do we decide what remains as thoughts between our ears and what becomes words that come out of our mouths? How do we figure out what is inbounds and what is out of bounds to share out loud with our partner? Let's be clear. I'm not talking in these next two episodes about honesty versus deceit per se, because it's a pretty safe rule of thumb that lies and deception are antithetical to trust and intimacy. What we're going to be doing is kind of hanging out in these shades of gray that make up the vast majority of our relational dilemmas and of our conflicts. These episodes are for you if you've struggled with any or all of the following. My partner is really blunt and I often get my feelings hurt. My partner says that I'm too brutally honest, and I think that I probably need to work on that. I never share how I really feel. I don't really know how to speak up in my relationship. So those kinds of questions and dilemmas this week and next week's episodes are inspired by a post that I wrote and shared on Instagram a while back. The quote that I wrote said, brutal honesty and emotional safety cannot coexist in a relationship. And the post received a lot of traction, which led me to want to come back and dig into this topic more deeply with you on reimagining love. And so that's what we're that's what we're gonna do. This is also a topic that comes up 
all the time. It's a big topic that comes up in my work with couples and in my conversations with students. Things like, is my partner too blunt or am I too sensitive? Do I tell my partner that I think that they didn't handle a problem they had at work very well or do I keep it to myself? Do I tell my partner that I don't particularly care for their new glasses or do I keep that to myself? Like, Where is the line between being honest and oversharing? So here is what we are going to do. Today's episode is called When Having No Filter Hurts a Relationship. Next week's episode is called People-Pleasing versus Brutal Honesty, When and How to Share Feedback with Your Partner. So I'm going to be bringing the tools of relational self-awareness to the question, how do you decide what stays inside your head and what gets shared out loud? And rather than learning a list of absolutes or hard and fast rules, you're going to come away from these episodes with a more nuanced understanding of these dilemmas and with tools for how you can make decisions that honor yourself and that honor the health and well-being of your relationship. A little note up top is that I'm going to be talking very specifically about intimate relationships in these episodes, but you're going to see that a lot of the principles can be applied to friendships and relationships with your family members and with your coworkers as well. These episodes are really about discernment. Discernment is about our internal filter, our internal felt sense of what needs to be said out loud, when and how to say it. Discernment is not a word that was used very much when I was training as a clinical psychologist. In fact, when I was doing a little bit of research for the episode and I was Googling the word discernment, it seems like it's a word that kind of hangs out more in religious contexts. But it's a word that I feel like makes a lot of sense when we're talking about feeling our way into these micro forks in the road that we face in our relationships. Discernment is about the weather whether or not I let you know about this thing that's rattling around inside of my head. But it's also about the how, how I bring it up to you, my timing, my tone, my words. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about like the individual factors. What is it that makes some of us blunt? What is it that makes some of us people-pleasing? And then I'm going to talk about why we need to move away from thinking about bluntness and people-pleasing as solely individual personality traits or tendencies and move towards thinking about bluntness and people-pleasing as relational dynamics. And that is going to set us up for next week's episode, where I'm going to tease apart those relational dynamics. We're going to dig into those ouch experiences that happen so often in our intimate partnerships. When you feel like something that your partner said felt hurtful or critical to you, or when you feel like your benign comment was taken as a personal attack by your partner. So in next week's episode, I'm going to offer you a process for making choices that are guided by relational self-awareness. I'm going to offer some guidance to the blunt partner. I'm going to offer guidance for how to love a blunt partner, guidance for the more people-pleasing partner, and then guidance for loving a people-pleasing partner. So that's our plan. I've created a companion worksheet that goes along with this week and next week's episode. So if you are a newsletter subscriber, you will receive the worksheet in your inbox next week. And if you want to grab a copy, you can head next week to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash no filter. 
and you can download it from there. And that link will also be in the show notes. Okay, so let's talk about (laughs) this term that I coined for this episode that I'm calling the filter spectrum. So imagine a spectrum and imagine that one end of the spectrum is bluntness. The other end of the spectrum is people-pleasing. Let's operationalize these two ends of the spectrum. So bluntness. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines bluntness as free expression of one's true feelings and opinions. Bluntness is about what's inside the thinking bubble coming right out the speaking bubble with little to no refinement. All of the thoughts, all of the musings, all of the observations, all of the criticisms. Okay, other end of the spectrum, people-pleasing. Merriam-Webster defines this as a person who has an emotional need to please others, often at the expense of his or her own needs or desires. So here, when we're talking about the other end of the spectrum, the people-pleasing end of the spectrum, much of what's inside the thinking bubble remains inside the thinking bubble. And those thoughts, musings, observations, criticisms that do somehow manage to get through the filter and move from the thinking bubble to the speaking bubble, when they come out, they tend to be tempered, well-reasoned, and presented ever so carefully. So we've got the spectrum in our mind. And imagine a filter, like think about a coffee filter or a colander that you would use in the kitchen for draining your pasta, or a sieve that you would take to the beach. The size of the spaces between the material dictates how much gets through the filter. When the material has a very tight weave, very little gets through the filter. And when the material has a looser weave, much more gets through the filter. So at the blunt end of our spectrum, the filter has got some big holes, right? There's whole big holes, big gaps. A lot of the stuff can just get through the filter. Thoughts become words. Over there at the people-pleasing end of our spectrum, the holes or the gaps are much smaller, much less travels through the filter, much less makes it through the barrier. Fewer thoughts become words. This is the filter spectrum. So take a moment and just reflect to yourself. Where would I put myself, generally speaking, on that filter spectrum from blunt to people-pleasing? Where would I put my partner, generally speaking, on that spectrum? Does my place on the filter spectrum change depending on who I'm with? In some contexts, do I have a tighter weave on my filter? And in other contexts, do I have a looser weave on my filter? Okay, so you are imagining the filter spectrum, and now we're going to look at why and how each of us ends up with the tendency or the valence or the predilection to live where we live on the filter spectrum. Let's talk first about culture. Specifically, let's talk about high context versus low context cultures. This is a construct that was originally introduced in 1959 by an anthropologist named Edward T. Hall. He posited that we can think about cultures in this way, kind of a rough cut of all the cultures of the world, is that some cultures are low context cultures and some cultures are high context cultures. Low context means that there's a value on straightforwardness and explicitness. 
in communication. You say what you mean, you mean what you say, you don't put a lot of fluff around what you say. There's a value on being concise, on being straightforward, on being explicit and clear. Paul argued that cultures that tend towards being more individualistic with looser social networks, a bit less priority on family, those cultures tend to be low context cultures. Conversely, high context cultures value communication that is based a lot on context, body language, tone, the overall context of what's being said. The value here is on being indirect, implicit, subtle. Cultures that tend to be more collectivistic, where there's a high priority on the family system, where social networks are tight. In those cultures, those are high context cultures. What's valued is kind of biting your tongue, saying less, really contextualizing anything that you do say. So obviously we can't plop entire nations neatly into one bucket or another, but there certainly are. I mean, I'm sure you're like sort of thinking about examples and images in your mind right now about how language and communication and style of communication varies between cultures. And it's not just, by the way, countries or ethnic groups either. I think workplaces also can vary in terms of higher context workplaces and lower context workplaces. Like what is the hidden curriculum in a workplace about how directly versus indirectly you address a problem or provide feedback? We can also look at family culture. Family culture can obviously be a reflection of those like capital C cultures I just talked about, but family culture can also be like a lowercase c. Every family has a microculture. Every family has a tendency towards how much do we talk about what's going on, how we're feeling about each other versus how much do we sort of sweep stuff under the rug. So you could line up family systems on that filter spectrum from family systems that tend to have relatively less of a filter where just people say what's on their mind and there's lots of openness around communication and lots of feedback that's given versus family systems where there's a tight filter, where lots of stuff is under the rug, where the value and the cultural, the family microculture is towards more biting your tongue, less is more. So think about that in terms of where you'd place your family system, what were your experiences. So the takeaways so far are you can locate yourself on a spectrum from bluntness to people-pleasing, how tight versus loose is your filter. You can also put your partner on that filter spectrum. Your cultural identity dictates in part where you live on the filter spectrum. This is important too, because especially if there are cultural differences between you and your partner, that difference likely shapes your beliefs about what should get said out loud and what should get held inside. Misunderstandings and hurt feelings about what's appropriate to share with each other in terms of observations or opinions very likely is also informed by what each of you is used to given the families that you grew up in. So I want you to remember to factor that in. When you and your partner experience a misunderstanding or one of you feels stung or hurt by what the other one said, widen out your lens and look at the cultural context that you both belong to in terms of your family systems, in terms of your larger cultural, ethnic, national, you know, those, those bigger cultural identity variables. 
context matters. Okay, reminder before I continue that if you're a newsletter subscriber, you will receive the companion worksheet in your inbox next week. And if you want to grab your copy of the companion worksheet, just head next week to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash no filter, and you can download it there. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so let's move our lens of relational self-awareness into a bit of a different direction. And let's talk about personality and personality differences and how personality shapes where we land on that filter spectrum. So the American Psychological Association, the APA, defines personality as, quote, individual differences in characteristic patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. So there's a whole branch in the field of psychology that's called personality psychology. It's a whole field that is devoted to understanding a person. Like, by what means do you understand a person? What makes us who we are as individuals? And there are different approaches to how you classify people's personalities. Right now, the dominant model of personality today is called the Big Five. And the Big Five theory of personality was created and refined over lots of decades, starting like way back in the 1940s by uh, just different teams of researchers and psychologists, for example, Goldberg, and then Costa and McRae. So the big five personality traits uh, spell out the word ocean very conveniently. So the big five personality traits are O, openness to experience, C, conscientiousness, E, extroversion, A, agreeableness, N, neuroticism. Those are the big five personality traits. So you can be plotted. If you took a personality assessment, you would be plotted on a spectrum for each of those five traits from openness to experience, like really wide open to new experiences, all the way over to not so interested in novelty or adventure. You could be plotted from conscientiousness, like super careful and thoughtful, to not so well organized or thoughtful or planful. You could be plotted on a spectrum from extroversion to introversion. Like from what source do you derive energy, right? Extroverts derive their energy from being with people and introverts derive their energy from being alone. The fourth one, agreeableness, which is having lots of interest in other people and paying really close attention to what other people think 
all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which would be caring less about what other people think. And then the last one, neuroticism, which is one end of the spectrum, the high neuroticism end of the spectrum is those of us who tend towards moodiness and worry versus the other end of the spectrum is those of us who tend towards emotional stability and relaxation. And in fact, plotting you along those five traits would paint a pretty solid picture of who you are as a person. Like if I knew where you stood on each of those five spectrums, I'd have a pretty good snapshot of who you are as a person. So in terms of our purposes today, those of us who identify as blunt or who are seen by the world as blunt are likely to score on the lower end of the agreeableness dimension of personality. And those of us who identify as people pleasers or who are seen as people pleasers would likely score on the high end of that agreeableness dimension. So this filter spectrum we're talking about today really kind of speaks to that dimension of personality, agreeableness to disagreeableness. How much are you paying attention to what other people are thinking and feeling. And researchers have found that each of those five dimensions of personality, if you did a a personality study of a large number of people, each of those five traits would fall on a bell-shaped curve. Think about like a normal curve, right? A a bell-shaped curve, which means that the vast majority of us fall somewhere in the middle and some of us fall at those extreme ends. I bring this up to validate that there aren't necessarily right and wrong or better and worse ways of being in the world, but that this filter spectrum, this agreeableness, you know, high agreeableness versus low agreeableness, this tendency towards being people-pleasing versus being blunt, this is a personality trait which means that it falls along this normal bell-shaped curve and there are normal variations between people. It's also worth noting that when we're talking about individual differences, neurodiversity plays in here as well. So neurodiversity is the idea that we need to value the reality that people interface with the world around them in lots and lots of different ways. So neurodiversity is a movement that is designed to destigmatize and depathologize conditions like autism and ADHD, which we have traditionally and historically called disorders. You know, we've called autism a disorder. We've called ADHD a disorder. The neurodiversity movement encourages us to think a bit differently about that and say, actually, it is normal to have within a population of people lots and lots of different ways of interfacing with the world that there's and in fact there is value in having people who approach the world approach a problem approach each other in lots of different ways so i want to also be clear that sometimes bluntness is a reflection of neurodiversity that it reflects just a particular way of relating to the world so your filter might be shaped also by how your brain is wired, right? Things that you focus in on, things that you perhaps miss or don't see. We all have profiles of strengths and growing edges, and there are costs and benefits to every single way of showing up in the world. If you are somebody who's more blunt, the cost is that you run a risk of offending people. You risk putting your foot in your mouth. 
you risk pushing people away or being more likely to be in conflict with people. You also are at risk of being perceived as arrogant or pushy because your opinions are so out there in the open. There's also benefits to being blunt. People know where they stand with you, and that can create a kind of safety and trust. Another benefit for people who are blunt is people who are blunt tend to bring clarification to that which feels muddy, right? They can get from point A to point B in a pretty darn direct route, and there's benefit to that. Same thing with people-pleasing. There's a cost of being people-pleasing. People who are people-pleasing are at risk of exhausting themselves, trying to figure out how the heck to language something in just the right way. They're also at risk of tolerating situations that don't prioritize their health and well-being. People-pleasers may be at risk of being perceived by others as inauthentic because people might not know where they stand, right? It might be kind of hard to see, what do you, but what are you really feeling? What are you really thinking? And those who are people-pleasing may have difficulty actually experiencing pleasure, like pleasure in life, because it's hard to enjoy activities that you haven't really chosen. And if you can't connect with your own wanting, then it's hard to enjoy what you have, right? The things around you might not be things that you've chosen because your filter is so tight and you don't let others know what you want and need. And you may not even in fact let yourself know what you want and need. There are also benefits to being more people-pleasing. People-pleasing means that you are paying attention to the people around you. You very likely know how to smooth things over. You know how to turn conflict into understanding. You are very likely highly emotionally attuned. People very likely feel safe being themselves around you, right? They don't have to put their guard up because they know that you are being thoughtful about how you perceive them and uh, how you understand them. You also value people's happiness, which very likely makes people feel good around you. So it's not about good, bad, right, wrong. It's about understanding the risks and the benefits and why we are the way we are. So we've covered how your place on the filter spectrum is shaped by these individual factors, like your cultural context and your personality. But because this is reimagining love, you know that we have to bring in the relational context because the rubber hits the road. The moment that something passes through the filter between my thinking bubble and my speaking bubble, the moment that something that's inside of my head, amusing, an observation, an opinion, the moment that that comes out of my mouth, there's a relational impact. You are going to feel some kind of way based on what has just passed into my speaking bubble. You're going to feel curious, elated, annoyed, offended, whatever. There's a relational impact, and that's what matters. Bluntness is relational. Bluntness is always directed toward someone. It's not just a personality trait. I spent so much time in this episode sort of thickening up how we think about bluntness because we have to do something more interesting than simply sticking a good or a bad label on bluntness. It's not about being critical of how you are or critical of how your partner is. It's also, by the way, not about saying, listen, I am who I am and you just have to accept it. Or the problem with the world today is that everyone is just too damn sensitive. Those aren't helpful 
stances. Those aren't relational stances. Your tendency towards bluntness has a particular meaning based on the person you're being blunt with, right? Because the person you're being blunt with has a tendency as well. People in your life are going to experience your bluntness differently. Some people will seek it out. Others will be hurt by it. Your tendency towards bluntness is also very likely context dependent, right? You might notice that you're more blunt at work and more tactful at home or vice versa. People pleasing is also relational, right? It's like literally in the word, pleasing other people. It's a relational, it's a, it's a tendency that you have that plays out in your relationships. It's a tendency to be accommodating relative to someone else. It's a tendency to be adaptable relative to someone else. It's a tendency to focus on serving others. It's a tendency to be more reactive to the world around you versus proactive. When we look at people-pleasing through a relational perspective, this means that we can't simply label people-pleasing behavior as all bad. Oh my gosh, you are a self-abandoning doormat. Or as all good, oh my gosh, you're so virtuous because you just consider everybody else before yourself. It's not, it's not that simple. We have to look at the context, the dynamic, the relational choreography. When you make an accommodation to please somebody else, what does the other person do? Does that person notice and thank you or do they trample right over? That part matters. So as you reflect on this episode for yourself, and hopefully with your partner, keep that both and in mind. The filter we've been talking about today is both about me and it's about us, my tendency, your tendency, and how these tendencies of ours bump up against each other. This relational self-awareness frame opens up a much more interesting conversation than a conversation that's just about trying to figure out who is too crass and who is too sensitive. That quest for right ways and wrong ways of being is going to end up getting you tied up in knots. It's going to get you feeling frustrated with each other and ultimately feeling disconnected from each other. Instead, talking in curious ways about why each of you have the tendencies that you have and the sensitivities that you have, that kind of conversation is far more intimacy promoting. That kind of conversation gives you a place from which you can start to make relational agreements about feedback and a place from which you can make repairs, like wholehearted, gentle, loving repairs when comments land poorly. So now that we have wrapped this topic up in a nice relational framework, I want to highlight one last piece before we close. Looking at your filter in terms of a relational framework, pertains not only to how your filter shapes the dynamics between you and your partner right here, right now, today. That relational framework is also about the fact that your family of origin dynamics very likely had a hand in creating your needs and your preferences in terms of the kind and quantity of feedback and openness that you want and need in your intimate relationship today. In other words, your past shapes your filter. Your unique experiences, the experiences that you had in your family system, very likely 
shapes your filter. So you're going to have to do some investigating to understand how your past specifically shapes your needs and your preferences around transparency, disclosure, and feedback today. I can't give you a list of, you know, if-then statements to make this kind of neat and tidy, but I'm going to give you some examples that I'm hoping are going to help you get started on putting these pieces in place for yourself and then hopefully also for your partner and with your partner. Example one, if you grew up in a family where there were lots of secrets, you might today be someone who hangs out at the people-pleasing end of the spectrum because you don't trust yourself to know what can be said out loud and what has to be kept quiet. Example two, if you grew up in a family system where there were lots of secrets, you might today be someone who is very blunt because you need total transparency in order to feel safe. As you can see, just from those two examples, there's not a one-to-one correspondence. If this in the past, then this in the present. The first example highlights what I call the path of repetition. You experienced a household in which not much was said out loud, there were lots of secrets, and you said, this is just how it is. I have to tread carefully at all times. You brought your past pretty directly into your present. There's a path of repetition. The second example highlights what I call the path of opposition. You experienced a household with lots of secrets and you said, "Uh uh-uh, never again. The past is transformed. It's flipped, in fact, in the present. So the translation from the past to the present may be direct. That's the path of repetition. Or it may be opposite. That's the path of opposition. The work of relational self-awareness is the work of forging a third path, what I call the path of integration. It's neither repeating the past, nor is it doing a 180 flip of the past, because 180 is very rarely the answer. On the path of integration, you recognize that you do, in fact, have a tendency And you have a tendency that was formed for a very good reason during a very vulnerable time in your life. And you today practice that sacred relational self-awareness mantra. That was then, this is now. You practice disentangling what was needed and necessary back then from what is possible in your life today. You remind yourself that you get to do it differently now. You don't have to repeat you don't have to do the opposite. You can find some shade of gray in between. Now that you are grown, you get to choose your responses rather than simply having to react to a reality that you cannot control, which is what, that's, that's what happens when we're little people, right? We exist in realities over which we have little control. But when we grow up, we get to have more agility, more agency, and we get to do it differently. Also, by the way, Lots of different family of origin dynamics can create the very same place on the filter spectrum today. Addiction can create bluntness. Trauma can create bluntness. 
unavailable parents can create bluntness. Intrusive parents can create bluntness, right? There's lots of paths to any particular place on the filter spectrum. Examples. If you grew up in a home with an intrusive or controlling parent, perhaps your parent viewed your inner world as a betrayal of them, something you weren't allowed to have. So therefore, you might have developed a very tight filter because you don't want other people to know what's going on inside of your head. Contrast that with perhaps a situation where you grew up with a parent who was deeply insecure about their own parenting and therefore wanted or needed to know what was happening inside of you to make sure they were doing right by you. There was like a lot of kind of anxiety. You may have developed a very tight filter, again, because you needed to control something. You need to control people's access to your inner world. You're not going to say much out loud and you're not going to let much in. So those two examples, again, those are very different types of family of origin stories, very different types of family of origin dynamics that end up creating the very same type of filter in adulthood. What I'm wanting you to do is explore the kinds of connections that you can make between the nature of your filter today and the kinds of experiences you had in your family of origin. Not to blame our parents or our caregivers or our attachment figures, but to understand, right? Because when we understand that we have a tendency that was created out of a wound or a painful pattern or a painful dynamic, once we can make that connection, we can start to liberate ourselves and give ourselves permission to play with some different places to live on that filter spectrum. We can try opening up a bit more in our intimate relationship today because our intimate partner might be able to handle much more than our parents could handle. We might try tightening up our filter, right? Saying less. Perhaps we've confused transparency and safety. Perhaps we could say less and still have other ways of feeling safe in our intimate partnership today. So a a takeaway here is just notice, start to notice what happens for you today when you have a thought, an opinion, an observation inside of you that you're considering saying out loud to your partner. Ask yourself, does saying it out loud feel risky? Does not saying it out loud feel risky? What does expression versus containment feel like inside of your body? And what does that felt sense suggest to you about your early experiences with disclosing versus refraining, speaking up versus staying silent? Reflect on how your specific reactions, needs, preferences tie to your early experiences. Draw a line from then to now. Making this connection, again, can help you get disentangled from old patterns and figure out more clearly what kinds of boundaries you want and need in your intimate relationship today. And this, my friend, is where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to next week stay quite focused on the relational dynamics and how you and your partner can work together to ensure that the space between you feels safe, that you have enough access to your partner's inner world to know where they stand and to feel connected, but you don't feel like you're trying to navigate your way through a sea of your partner's every thought, every reaction, every musing. 
So thank you. Thank you for joining me here today on Reimagining Love. And I very much look forward to picking up with you next week. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it.